wonderful listeners and welcome to teach me something the podcast where i talk to you about something that has piqued my curiosity and everett provides grade a color commentary no pressure feels like pressure you can handle it oh yes i'm melissa and i'm everett last episode we talked about the ancient celts and some early stories from irish mythology and this week we're sticking with the irish mythology with four more stories Albeit from later cycles of mythology. Perfect. I'm going to repeat my disclaimers from last episode. There's so many versions of these myths. There's different cycles in Irish mythology where different, or the same characters act differently. And pronunciations are just so hard. And these are all my disclaimers. In case you're wondering why something might not sound the same way you expect it to, if you know anything about this, or if you decide to do further research, it might not be the same. Are you ready for some stories? I'm ready. How about you teach me something? Our first two tales are from the Ulster cycle. So we've moved past the mythological cycle that we were on last time. Mm-hmm. This is the second cycle, the Ulster cycle. It contains tales from the first century CE, a time of heroes and of warfare. These stories center mainly around heroes within the Ulid province. Specifically... It tells stories of the King of Ulster, Conquivar MacNessa, and Perfect. the warrior Cúchulainn. Some of the characters from the mythological cycle reappear here, um, but they aren't necessarily consistent with their character from the first cycle. Right. Some are, some aren't. Cúchulainn uh, will be the focus of Tales 1 and 2. He's a demigod and a hero who's one of the most important figures of Irish myth. Definitely one of my favorites. Have you heard of him? Oh, yes. Oh, good. Great. His birth story is a little odd. Mm-hmm. But in mythology, whose who's isn't, really? Cúchulainn was born of a mortal mother, and his father was a god. His mother, Ditana, was the sister of the king, the one I mentioned, Conquivar MacNessa. One day, she swallowed a mayfly, or maybe some other really small creature, in her wine, accidentally. And suddenly, Lou... You remember Lou I do. from last time, right? The same guy, different cycle. In this cycle, he's pretty much like a god, not as much a hero. Um, anyways, Lou appears in front of Ditana and tells her, because she swallowed that mayfly, now she is to bear his child. That seems like pretty Completely standard practice. Completely logical, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this child, this demigod, is said to have been destined to live a short life, but upon death, his name would live on forever. Remind you of anyone? Maybe a few. (laughs) He's likened to Achilles. Yeah. Achilles with the same type of prophecy. It doesn't say here if Cuchulain could choose his fate the same way Achilles had the chance to choose a long life lived in obscurity or a short, brutal life where his name lives on forever. Um, But that is his destiny. The question is, how will the name of Cuchulain live on in history when that's not even what his mother named him? On the orders of Lou, Ditana names this child Shadonda. 
We'll find out in this first story how he gets his name, and the second story will tell us of a great battle. Yes. Perfect. Tale number one. How Shadonda became Kukulin. sure what was going on in the life of a five-year-old Shadonda, or why a five-year-old has this much independence, but we come into the story as this small boy is deciding to travel alone to a large city because he heard there were boys playing there. Mm-hmm. It's like going to the next neighborhood, basically. Well, in his defense, it was like 150 boys, so that must have sounded like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. He's also a demigod, so it's fair to assume he's a little more independent than the average five-year-old, but... Still. Anyway, so Shadonda heads off for the city of Evan Maka to find these 150 boys who are being led by Prince Folivan. Now, the custom at the time was that to join this boy troop, you need to win a pledge of protection from them. But Shadonda doesn't know this. He's only five, after all. Yeah. These boys are playing a game with a ball. When Shadonda runs in and, and he steals it and proceeds to score a brilliant goal in whatever this unidentified ancient ball game is, this infuriates the boy troop. They immediately decide that their hurt pride is apparently worthy of a death sentence, which I personally feel is a bit of an overreaction. Well, I don't know. You just got, they just got schooled in a cross between, what, basketball and soccer, maybe? Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea what this game is, but they got scored on by someone that wasn't even playing. And instead of saying, well, that doesn't count. He wasn't even playing. They tried to kill him. They throw balls, stones, spears. They chase him with bats and clubs. They never really stopped to consider that murdering a five-year-old child because he played with your ball without permission might be just a little over the top. But none of this touches Shadonda. He uses his toy staff to deflect the weapons Jedi style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To be clear, the ancient myth does not say Jedi style. That's my editorializing. Uh, I was yeah. thinking maybe for a moment this was just in a galaxy far, far away. A long time ago. Yeah, long, long time. Long, long, That's long right. Time. It fits perfectly. While these attacks do not hurt Shadonda, they do make him angry. And they don't stop. And Shadonda gets angrier and angrier until he pulls a move that really should have seen him invent the catchphrase, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, many centuries ago. Shadonda morphs into a mighty cyclops with a ring of fire encircling his head and a hideous gaping mouth that stretches from ear to ear. He's just flattening boys left and right and until the king of Evanmaka, Konkovar Meknesa, finally calms him. When it's all said and done, Shadonda has killed 50 of the boy troop. Well, that's a lot less people to play with. <laughs> You know, I really didn't consider that. He should, yeah. he should have thought of that. He should have. Five-year-olds need to consider the consequences of their actions a little better than that. Yeah. The king starts mediating the original conflict between the boys, apparently just ignoring the Cyclops thing and all of the dead kids. Conquivar McNessa asks Shadonda if he'd known of the custom. Did he know to ask for protection? When Shadonda tells him no, he didn't know... The king then orders this gang of boys to forgive Shadonda and grant him their protection. Great. So you see, everything is fine now, right? Exactly. 
Well, not so much. They begin to play again, including Shadonda this time, but they have to stop almost as soon as they start. The problem? Well, Shadonda is smashing the older boys to the ground over and over. The king, of course, wants to know why he is doing this. I will not ease or stop until each of these boys is under my protection, insists this, again, five-year-old boy. Yeah. Nothing he does seems to phase Konkovar McNessa, though, because the king just agrees. Makes sense, he says. After all, you can easily overpower any of these older boys. Just like that, Shadonda becomes the protector of these boys, most of whom are twice his age. And just to be clear here, I don't know what protecting, being a protector, being under someone's protection. I don't know what that entailed. Okay. Um, but I don't know. He's a leader of the boy troop, I guess. I'm not sure. A few months later, the smith, Kulin, is throwing a grand feast. On his way to the feast, the king sees Shadonda and the boys playing the game now identified as whole ball. Okay. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, you have to get the ball ball. in the hole. That's my guess. Okay? He's really impressed by what he sees. He stops to watch. The whole troop. 150 boys again somehow. Like, maybe there's, like, a membership limit. They, like, open up new membership, and then they they cap it at 150. And then every time he decides to go kill a bunch of them, then they can let in some more. Wait list. Um, So the whole troop is defending their goal against only Shadonda. 150 versus one. Well, 149 versus 1 or 150 versus 1? Unclear. Okay. Would it make a difference? Well, yeah. Is their troop limited at 150 or 151? Sounds like a question for some people that aren't me. Okay. Some experts, maybe. But Shadonna still scores with ease around all these 150 boys. He's also able to completely shut out the boys, even though he's defending his goal all by himself. King Konkovar has seen enough. He asked Shadonda to please accompany him to the feast as his guest. Well, he says no. At least, not right now. Yeah, he's playing. Cold ball. It is exactly right. He, he tells the king he'll come when the boys have had enough play. When the king and his party arrive at the feast, Kulin greets them warmly, then asks, Are any others due to join us? I want to release my bloodhound to guard the property. This must have been like a really far journey because, of course, the king just says, No, forgetting entirely about Shadonda. Our company is complete. Good. Yeah. Says Kulin, who then proceeds to go on and on, gushing about how wonderfully terrifying his bloodhound is. He is an astonishing beast with the strength of hundreds. He recognizes only me, and he will tear to pieces any who dare approach. He just gushes. You can all see where this is going, I'm sure. Shadonda comes to the feast and is attacked by said bloodhound. The dog springs at the boy, baring his teeth and snarling viciously. Shadonda has only one defense of the ball. He throws it directly into the mouth of the hound, with so much force that it tears into him, carrying his innards out through his rear. Yeah. Standard. I don't see how the animal could have survived that, but I guess it didn't matter to Shadonda because he picks up the dog and smashes it to pieces on a rock. Sorry. 
ick. That was a little that was a little gross, but that is what he does. This also describes or outlines how he was able to score against 150 boys in the other net. Just like he threw the ball through them. Yeah. Mm. Plus, mm. they have a wait list. They were able to get 50 more members in like a day, apparently. So this isn't a problem. This is a good point. Yes. Well, this whole incident leaves Coolin pretty gosh darn mad. Shadarna is unhurt, and his beloved dog has been brutally killed. I assume he doesn't have a wait list for more dogs, though. Why do you always say things I'm about to comment on just now? Just good at (laughs) this. Psychic connection. He says, You have cost me a friend and my livelihood, boy. Not only did my dog guard the house at night, he also guarded my flocks by day, making me prosperous. Master Kulin, don't be angry with me, pleads Shadonda. I will see that a pup from your bloodhound's line be trained to replace him. And until that occurs, I will be your hound. The men who are present all feel like this is an excellent deal. After all, we've seen what kind of damage this kid's capable of. Yeah. And so, from then on, Shadonda was called Kukulin, meaning the Hound of Kulin. Tale number two, the cattle raid of Kelney. The king and queen of Connaught province are having a marital spat. Hmm. Basically, the king is being a misogynistic jerk, but that's par for the course in mythology. Standard, yeah. King Alyil is of the opinion that his wife is well off only because she married him, a rich and powerful man. Like all women... He huffs dismissively. Queen Maeve is pretty darn offended by this, because, as she says, Before we met, I was richer than my father and richer than my brothers. I was better in battle than them, too. Marrying me was the making of you. So to settle this, they have their servants bring all their precious possessions to them so they can measure their wealth. You know, like physically measure it with scales and measurements. As one does when one has a fight with their spouse. That's what we do. Can't even tell you the number of times all of our precious valuables have been piled up to measure. Yeah, exactly. Well, after all the comparisons and calculations are done, they actually agree. Their wealth is all but equal. All but the bull. King Aliel possesses Finvenok, a bull born of Maeve's herd. But he belongs to the king because... He refused to remain in a woman's keeping. Quite the bull. I didn't know bulls could be misogynists as well, but here we are. Well, it was ancient times. Everything was a misogynist (laughs) back then, including women. Maeve asks a man from the province of Ulster, named Dara, if she can borrow his bull for a year, so that it might sire a bull equal to Finvenach. You see, Dara owns the brown bull of Kelney. The king of all bulls. Dara says no. Maeve is not taking no for an answer. Hmm. She collects four armies to aid her in taking the bull by force. To ensure her success, she first consults her druids, seeking an omen. 
I see a beautiful youth, Cuchulain, the Hound of Cúlin. In battle, he takes the form of a dragon. He will destroy your armies, the seer responds. I'm not sure why it's a dragon now. Like, I don't know what happened to the Cyclops with a halo of fire. Well, uh, the dragon just has one eye. Therefore, they're interchangeable terms. With a halo of fire? Yeah. I mean, most cyclopic dragons have a halo of fire. That's oh, standard. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. You taught me something. I learned yeah. something new. There you go. Queen Maeve ignores the prophecy, which will end just great, according to every myth ever written. Yep. She chooses a man to lead her armies, Fergus. Fergus is, in fact, a childhood friend of Cucullin. And so it begins a war between the provinces of Connaught, led by Fergus and Queen Maeve, and Ulster, led by Cucullin. Unsurprisingly, Cucullin absolutely dominates Maeve's army, killing hundreds and hundreds a day and stacking their corpses to build his walls. Soon Maeve's army is no longer willing to fight. None want to challenge Cucullin, and, and so Maeve sends out Fergus. Fergus and Cucullin meet on the battlefield, and they both agree they'd really rather not fight each other. Mm-hmm. They're still friends, after all. They strike a deal where Cucullin gives way to Fergus and his army today. And on a day when Cucullin is hurt, Fergus would give way to him. So Cucullin runs from their summit, pretending to be terrified of the man. The Ulster army retreats upon seeing their hero so scared. But the next day, it was right back to the slaughter. Cucullin took many heads that day, including that of Queen Maeve's son, Ferdia. He exhausts himself this day with his efforts and all that killing. You know, it's so tiring. It takes a lot of energy. And he returns to the Ulster camp to rest and tend his wounds. When he doesn't immediately return, the tide of the battle starts to shift. The Ulstermen are being overrun by Maeve's army, and Fergus especially is taken with bloodlust. I will pull heads from shoulders and scatter the limbs of the Ulstermen today, he shouts like a madman. It's at this moment I'd like to pause and remind everyone that this is all because of a bull. A bull that would have been returned in a year. And of course, it's also kind of about a misogynistic bull and a misogynistic husband, but... It's funny when we attribute it to the bull, I feel. You know, I mean, last episode we had, you know, a great big war that broke out over a moldy cow. So it's really just bovines at the root of all these wars. Okay, so I'll remove that talking point from the end of this story then, because I did also mention that. But you're just so good apparently (laughs) at reading my mind. Just for everyone listening, I swear Everett doesn't look at my outlines. He's never seen that. Well, he can visually see them, but... This is off this page. He wouldn't see this part. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've we've made that point, I'll move on. <laughs> Hearing the deranged proclamation from Fergus, Cucullin fears that there will soon be more dead Ulstermen than living. He races to the battleground, forgetting his sword in his hurry. But as we know from the last story, Cucullin is quite adept at weapon improvisation grabs his chariot and wields it like a club, swinging it and smashing his way through Maeve's soldiers. Cutting off Fergus in mid-rampage, both men bloody and war-weary. 
That's a tough one to say. War weary. Yeah. Those syllables don't go well together. Sounds good if I get it right, though. Cucullin demands that he honors his promise. Fergus does keep his oath, fleeing from Cucullin and the Ulsterman. Maeve's army, once again reminded of the sheer strength, power, and rage of Cucullin, flees with him. They won't. They won't come back. <laughs> this, this is just too... <laughs> they can all see where this is going. Yeah. Maeve returns to Connaught, allowed to go free by Cucullin as it was dishonorable to kill a woman. You see, they are a feeble-minded bunch that can't really be held responsible for their own actions. Yeah, no comments. <laughs> and so it was that Ulster won the war. Nothing further is mentioned in the story about King Alyil or if the king and queen ever got any help with their marital strife. This was simply a tale just to tell of the epic and wonderful battle skills of Cucullin. And now I won't say that thing about the cow because I was going to say it. I was going to say people were serious about their bovines back in ancient Ireland. Well, there you go. You got to say it anyways. It's well, perfect. I got to say the last line. Good. Now, the remaining two stories for this episode come from the Finian Cycle. The Finian Cycle was written in the 3rd century CE, and its stories are about the exploits of the brave and mighty hero Finn McCool and his people, the Fianna. Many of the stories are narrated by a character called Ashim, who is the son of Finn McCool. Finn is known especially for his great wisdom and extensive knowledge, and his really cool name. Very McCool. I, his name is awesome, right? Like, that's an epic name. But I have to, I really hope I don't offend anyone, because all I can think of when I hear Finn McCool is like kind of like a mascot. Like maybe a beer mascot, or maybe like a cool shark spokesman because it's got fins. Oh, like with sunglasses, like yeah. a really cool shark. Well, oh sunglasses are like a cool obvious. shark, right? Yeah. And he could be a spokes spokesperson for like a spokes shark for like an aquarium. I don't know. And he would be named Finn McCool. Doesn't that work so well? That does. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, I probably offended someone. I'll take it seriously from now on. The next story, tale number three. Is probably the most popular Finn McCool tale as it explains how he got his wisdom. And it really highlights the importance that the ancient Celts placed on intelligence in their society. The fourth and last tale I'll tell is going to be about Ashin. As I said, he's the son of Finn McCool. His name literally means young deer, as his mother's scythe was turned into a deer, twice actually, um, by a really jealous druid. Yeah, standard, again. Tale number three, Finn McCool and the Salmon of Knowledge. So Finn McCool had a rough childhood. His father was murdered when he was just a baby. His druid aunts tried their best to protect him, changing his name to Daini and hiding him in the forest. But alas, they couldn't keep him safe. The assassins that killed his father found the hideout where Finn had been staying. Finn ran from the killers and wandered the countryside, never feeling secure enough to stop in any one place for long. We pick up the story, though, as Finn meets the poet Finnegas. He finally finds a home here, he finds some safety and comfort, 
It's not clear whether Finn becomes the man's servant in exchange for room and board, or if the poet kind of takes Finn on in a sort of apprentice-teacher kind of relationship. But however it happens, Finn McCool is now home. And what a home it turns out to be for Finn. He's well-matched with Finn Agas, who is a patient and gifted teacher. He's still a child, after all, and an intelligent one at that. He's bursting with questions and bubbling with facts. Finnegas is kind, and he never tires of answering the inquisitive boy's questions. And he has a lot of questions. Perfect. Why do you live by the river Boini? Finn asks one day. The poet eloquently replies, Because a poem is a revelation revealed only near the sound of running water. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is, and... I don't know if it's 100% accurate. Poetic license, right? Okay. Yeah. Fine. But Finn isn't impressed by this abstract answer, and he insists to know why Finnegas lives by this specific river. Due to the prophecy, the man answers. The prophecy says if I live by Boiny water, I would catch the salmon of knowledge. And what then? asks Finn. And how does the salmon get the knowledge? So Finnegas tells Finn of the legend of the Salmon of Knowledge. There once was an ordinary salmon living in the Well of Wisdom. The well was surrounded by nine hazel trees. On these trees grow the nuts of knowledge, and as they drop into the water, the salmon eats them, transferring their knowledge into its flesh. And it is said that the first person to taste the salmon will gain the ability to look forwards and backwards in time. And we'll gain all knowledge. I want some of those hazelnuts. <laughs> Mostly because I like hazelnuts. Yeah. Finn falls silent, puzzling over this new information. Finally, he speaks. What are we waiting for then? Why can't we follow the river and find this spot ourselves? Well, it turns out the hazel grove is hidden by magic. The only way to learn the location of the trees and the well is to eat the salmon of knowledge. Time passes. Finn grows and learns. Finnegas teaches and fishes and writes his poetry. More years go by. One day, while Finnegas is teaching Finn Latin on the banks of the river, Finn notices some unusual splashing in the water. It was the salmon of knowledge. Finnegas immediately jumps to catch the fish wrestling it with a net and a pole while trying to avoid its gaze. Legend says anyone who looks into its eye would fall into a deep sleep. Finnegas struggles for hours with the salmon until it finally tires out and is captured. Exhausted, Finnegas asks Finn to cook the salmon for him, as he is simply too tired from his exertions. Before he leaves to go lie down, he reminds Finn once again you must not eat even a single bite, for only the first man who tastes of it will gain its powers. That kind of sucks, I think. Like, you can't share. No. Like, that just seems really, really rude. You have a whole salmon, and you only need one bite to gain all the knowledge, and no one else can have any. Well, the rest of it just becomes, like, a nice fish fillet. No extra properties to it. Mm. My fish fillets don't take seven years to catch, though. Well, just think of how good they would taste, though. <laughs> so Finn 
cooks the fish, as his master had asked, and when Finagas wakes, he serves it to him nervously. Have you eaten any? asks Finagas, suspiciously. Of course not, insists the boy. But when Finagas's eyes begin to narrow, his eyebrows furrowing with disappointment, Finn confesses. I didn't mean to, he cries. As I was cooking, I burned my thumb, and the pain caused me to put it into my mouth. I promise that is all. If your salmon tastes as good as my thumb, you will be happy. But at this, Finnegas' face breaks into a small grin. And instead of being angry, he seems happy. I'm afraid I haven't been quite honest with you, Finn, he says. The prophecy that I would catch the salmon of knowledge also said that I would not be the one to eat it. That honor has always belonged to the son of Ool. He was your father, wasn't he? And from that day on, there was a new light in the boy's eyes. Whenever Finn McCool is puzzled, he needs only to put his thumb in his mouth to discover the solution to the problem. And I kind of love that sucking his thumb is apparently the thing that makes him smart. Oh, he's still a child. That's, you know, something that many of them do. I mean, at, at this point, he is he is rapidly nearing adulthood. Yeah, of course. And as a powerful warrior and god, like, he, he still puts his thumb in his mouth. <laughs> I love it. Here's a little extra trivia, though. Salmon actually occurs, like, well, salmons occur repeatedly in Celtic myths. Um, they were mainly associated with wisdom and the ability to perceive the future. And they were said to live in sacred wells. So somewhere out there, hopefully on the internet so I can see it one day, there's a lot more Irish mythology stories about salmon. Just don't get pulled into the salmon of doubt. That's not <laughs> ancient Irish. That's Douglas Adams. Oh, wait, really? Yes. There's actually a salmon of doubt in that series? Yeah, one of the books. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, one day I really do have to read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I don't remember if that one was Hitchhiker's Guide or Dirk Gently. Okay, but, Everett really likes the author Douglas Adams yes. and, and thinks it's well worth it to read the books, even if you've seen the one movie. And I think I will definitely do that one day. Excellent. A Sheen in the Land of Forever Young. This story, once again, begins with a prophecy. A prophecy that the king will lose his power to a younger challenger. Literally a tale as old as time. Manon McClear. I said that wrong. Mananon McClear. See what I mean with these Irish pronunciations? Ooh, missed an entire syllable in there. <gasps> okay. Rewind. Mananon McClear, the sea god, is the king in question this time. He is king of a land called Tir Nanog, otherwise known as the land of forever young. For none age there. Tir Nanog is the Celtic Otherworld, and it's located under the sea. Near Neverland. <laughs> well, I mean, again, they do, you don't know this, but later they do call it a fairy land, so... <laughs> Right? See? Exactly. So Disney, whoever wrote Peter Pan just stole this 
No, the rest of the story is not like Peter Pan, though. Oh. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Okay. The custom in Tier Nanog is to pick the king through a contest of strength and stamina. Very basically, it is a race. Every man in the realm races up a hill to the finish line, which is a chair that they must then sit on. And the first man to sit down in the chair is the new king. King for the next seven years. It's like very grown-up musical chairs. It is exactly that. Basically, whoever gets their butt in the throne is the king. Mananon McClear had been king for years upon years. He is simply too strong and no one in land can best him. The length of his reign is incalculable at this point, and it will remain so, except for that pesky prophecy. Mananon's druid priest has foreseen that he will hold his throne forever, unless, of course, he has a son-in-law. This was bad news for Mananon McClear's daughter, Neve. Again, what's new? <laughs> she was more beautiful than any other, and many suitors sought her hand in marriage. But instead of taking the boring old option of locking her in a tall, tall tower, like so many other kings, Mananon casts a spell on her. Her beautiful face and flowing locks are gone, and in their place is the head of a pig. Now no one will want to marry her, is his thinking. Yeah, he should probably still put her in a tall tower, though. She's rightfully distraught about this turn of events and asks for the counsel of her father's druid priest. She doesn't just say oink. <laughs> he consoles her, telling her to go to Ireland and marry a son of Finn McCool. Only then will she change back into the non-pig-headed beauty that she once was. You're right, he should have put her in a tower. I told you. Like... Or like at least like not let her go see the prophesizing druid. Like, Why did he let her do that? Did he think that the prophesizing druid was in a tower? <laughs> so Two ne- birds with one stone, basically. You know? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So Neve mounts the horse Embar. Embar made an appearance last episode, but for those who don't remember, Embar has the wonderful ability to gallop equally well over land and water. This makes for a short trip for Neve as she travels to... Knock on Ar, the territory of Finn McCool and his people, the Fianna. She arrives outside the fort, dismounts her horse, and cautiously approaches a small group of hunters. Before she can speak, one of the men turns to her. Forgive me my boldness, he says, but I've never before seen a woman with the head of a pig. Instead of telling this man that this comment was pretty unnecessary and kind of rude, she sadly tells him what has happened to her. She ends her story by lamenting, The only way to break this spell is for me to marry a son of Finn McCool. Well, I don't know what answer she expected, but she certainly was surprised when the man told her that he was Asheen, son of Finn. How convenient for her. Very. I dare say you will not wear that pig's head much longer, he tells her. I will have you as my wife. Well, she had a pretty cool horse. So, you know, I just feel like this, this defeats the theory of Mananon McClear giving her a pig head, thinking no man will want to marry her, when the very first man that she happens to come across instantly tells her he's going to marry her. Yeah. She didn't even have to ask. 
Niamh stops Ushin, though. First, she says, I must tell you that I am not of this world. I come from the land of Tir Nanog, and my visit here is brief. To have me, you must come back with me to Fairyland. See? Fairyland. Mm-hmm. Taking literally no time to think it over, or say goodbye to anyone, it seems, Ashin agrees. Lead on, wife, he tells her, following her to the land of the forever young. Somehow, in all this commotion and distress caused by his daughter's disappearance, Manan McClear has apparently forgotten the prophecy. I mean, it, it seems a little weird to me that someone who just turned his daughter's head into that of a pig for purely selfish reasons would then be that upset over her being gone, but it is what it is. He joyously welcomes Ashin as his new son-in-law. In short time, the king's seven-year term comes to an end. It is time to run the race. We bet you don't know what's going to happen next. Do you know? Is it really obvious? Seems like it. Yeah, okay. All the men of the realm gather, including both Mananon McClear and Ashin. Ashin just destroys the competition, arriving at the throne and taking a seat before any of the other men can get even halfway up the hill. Ashin is declared the new king, and his victory was so impressive that the contest, contest was henceforth disbanded, making Ashin king of Tirnanog indefinitely. After he had ruled for some time, though, he becomes homesick. He longs to see his father and the Fianna one last time. Time works differently in the other world, dear one, Niamh sadly tells him. You've been here a few short years, but centuries have passed in Ireland. Yeah. To me, this kind of seems like vital information she should have told him a lot earlier, like perhaps before he agreed to come back to Tiernanog with her in the first place. So I kind of feel bad for him, you know. But he needs to see it for himself. It's the only way he can get closure and face the hard truth that his loved ones are all gone. Niamh understands these feelings and she lets him take Embar for the journey. If you touch the soil of Ireland, she warns, you will become aged and you won't be able to return. Embar will be forced to come back without you. He reassures her and sets off for Ireland. When he arrives, though, he quickly realizes that Niev is right. Nothing looks familiar. Ashin discovers that Finn and the Fianna have perished centuries ago, and they live on only in legend. But wait. What is that on the ground? Ashin literally stumbles upon Borabu, the battle horn of the Fianna people. He clings on to the last shreds of hope he has left. Maybe he can blow the horn, and the remnants of his people will come back to him. Ashin leans over to reach it, but it, it is out of his grasp. He leans a little further, and a little further, and then he completely loses his balance. Down he falls off of Embar, and instantly he is transformed into an extremely old man. Embar runs, runs back to Tiernanog without him. A nearby cattle herder sees this whole thing go down, and he runs to the local priest to tell him what he saw. The priest, might have heard of him, Patrick of sainthood fame, 
gives a sheen a bed and some food and cares for him in his last days. These days are spent with St. Patrick asking Ashin many questions and Ashin telling many tales of the Fianna people. And thus, St. Patrick became the keeper of these ancient myths and legends, and it is him that made sure the stories survived to the present day. Just to be clear, that's, that's the myth. St. <laughs> Patrick did not actually ensure that the myth survived to the present day, but as we spoke of last time, a lot of Irish priests, um, druid-type people, were the ones that wrote down that whole history. Um, so it's very interesting, this story, because, I mean, as is the general case for stories in the Finian cycle, it helps to explain how their traditional folklore tales of fairies and supernatural beings survived the conversion of Ireland to Christianity. Um, so you get the beginning of the story, which is pretty fantastical, yeah. and by the end it merges into St. Patrick, which represents Christianity. Um, and so that's kind of a good example to show you how the cycles progress Ireland's myths from those supernatural god stories into more Christian-like um, tales. So I kind of thought that was a that was a cool reason to pick this story to illustrate yeah. how even through one story it can kind of shift like that. Very cool. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. I really do hope that you enjoyed learning some Irish mythology. Um, we're finished with those stories for now. Maybe one day I'll pick it back up. Next time, though, in the Mythology of the British Isles Part 3, we're going to get into some stories from other cultures, namely British and Scottish legends and myths. I am really enjoying learning about these. And just being able to see the similarities with other ancient cultures and stories has been really cool. I, really, I can't wait for next week because it's, you know, new mythologies, new regions, even if it's very similar. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to listen to Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I really hope you've learned something new.